The sin of man and the wrath of God has been on Jesus laid. Lord, we thank you for coming as a baby, for living a perfect life, for dying the death that we deserved, and rising to give us life. Thank you for the grace that you show us. Help us to respond to that grace. Help our hearts to respond to the word this morning. Speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' holy name we ask. Amen. Would you take your seats? How blessed we are. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, We are here for your glory. Christ, we are here to exalt you. Help us to do that this morning. We have been so blessed with the worship as we'll be able to raise our voices to you. Father, help our hearts to be in the middle of our voices singing such beautiful songs to you. Help us to be faithful to you. Help us to grow in holiness. Help us to be people who... We don't just do it on Sunday mornings, but we do it every day of our lives and our families. Help us to be people like that. We love and praise you, and it's through Christ's name. Amen. So I was building a tower with my little son, Lukey, and we started by focusing on the foundation. And then we started building up one block on the other. It was so tall that my little son, Lukey, couldn't reach the top, so he climbed up on a chair to continue to add to the already high tower. So he continued to build upward without worrying about it collapsing. Why? Why weren't we worried? Well, the foundation was firm. It was solid. It was strong. It was sturdy. And similarly today, this morning, we continue our journey in the Beatitudes as our first Beatitude Beatitude taught us that we must be poor in spirit, spiritually helpless, the Word of God says. Poor in spirit is the foundation as Christ started with this Beatitude first. We can't move on in the Beatitudes. We can't mature in our Christian walk if we are not first poor in spirit. 
Spiritual helplessness is a fundamental characteristic of all children of God. We recognize our nothingness without Christ in our lives. We are desperate for him. We are spiritually bankrupt within ourselves without God. So you may be wondering as you're sitting here hearing this, how does someone poor in spirit actually live then? I mean, for example, how do we love our spouse? Or how do we train and parent our children? How do we serve and love in the church? How can a helpless person do anything? Well, the obvious answer is they can't. That's the point. They can't. Turn with me to Matthew 19.14. That's Matthew 19.14. Well, we will begin this morning. And this is Jesus speaking. And he says this, little, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belong to such as these. So my question to you is, why does the kingdom belong to little children? Well, of course, many of you have probably figured this, this out, having children, that they are so good and perfect. They think about others all the time, and they never think about themselves. <laughs> they always want to share their toys with their little friends when they come over, and especially if they're boys, I know this, they never fight. And by the way, they always listen to their parents, right? Does it sound like the children that you know? Okay, not so much, right? But children are dependent. They are dependent. For example, what would you think if I told my little son, Lukey, you know, Lukey, you're now three. I think it's time that you become a little more responsible. Have you ever thought about getting a job? Of course, this is crazy talk, right? Because children are dependent on their parents for survival. And we are no different, brothers and sisters. Spiritually, this is us. We start dependent on Christ, and we end dependent on Christ. That's what Jesus' point was in Matthew 19, 14. We need to be, be dependent like little children. We depend on Christ for our strength. We depend on Christ for our ability. We depend on Christ for our love. We depend on Christ for our mercy we give to others. We're dependent on Christ for our patience in our marriages. We're dependent on Christ to please God in all situations. Do you guys understand we're dependent on Christ? But today we unleash the second beatitude, which builds on being poor in spirit. We don't graduate from our spiritual helplessness this morning. We just add to it or build on it. So turn with me this morning to Matthew 5, 4. That's Matthew 5, 4, where we will begin with our second beatitude this morning. And Jesus, surprising everybody, says, Blessed are those who mourn, 
for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Or happy are the sad. Or happy are those who are sorrowful. Or happy are those who are grieving. Or happy are those who are wailing. Do you guys feel that way? But what are they wailing, mourning, grieving over is the question. People mourn and grieve for different reasons, right? But truth number one tells us that citizens of Christ do not mourn over self. Let me read that again. Citizens of Christ do not mourn over self. Many times, mourning reveals a selfish heart that is upset over what is happening to me or the self. So again, let's turn to another passage. We're going to go to 2 Corinthians 7.10 this morning. And as we discuss Matthew 5, 4, we're going to use 2 Corinthians 7, 10 to sort of explain what it means to spiritually mourn. And this is Paul speaking to the church at Corinth. And I'll give you a second to get there. And Paul says this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So let's reread the second half of this passage because I want to start with the second half first. And it says, but worldly sorrow brings death. What in the world is worldly sorrow? Well, worldly sorrow has to do with a focus on me. When life affects me wrongly, I am essentially mourning for me. Mourning for me. And here are a few ways worldly sorrow is played out in our lives. Number one, worldly sorrow says this. I am in pain. I suffer because I got caught. For example, a person who's having an affair finally gets caught. They finally get find out, found out. Their spouse tells them that they are leaving and taking the children with them. This causes the guilty spouse to beg for them to stay. They say things like, I won't ever do it again. I can't lose my family. I will be lost. I hate what I've done. I have learned my lesson. Please don't leave. I won't do it again. And they sound like they have real deep remorse for their actions. But let me ask you, who is this sorrow directed towards? Or who is at the end of this person's sorrow? Self. Self is at the end. Number two, worldly sorrow is played out in our life this way. I am grieved that I did not get what I wanted. Often we are mourning over the fact that we don't get what we think we deserve. Now let me ask you a question. What do we deserve from God? Now think about this. If we're saved by His grace, what do we actually deserve from God? Let's think about that. The Bible says we deserve anger, wrath, Spiritual death, which means we're all supposed to go to hell, and yet God in his love and grace gives us what we don't deserve. We definitely don't want what we deserve. Number three, 
Worldly sorrow says this, I will earn God's approval through doing better and trying harder. Let me ask you, can we earn God's approval this morning? Can we earn it? Well, think about this. Does my three sons, Luki, Silas, and Job, earn my approval? No, of course not, right? I love them with an unending, deep and abiding love. It is not predicated on how they behave. And God's love for us is so much deeper than our love for our children. Amen? We don't earn God's approval. It is if we have turned to Christ in faith and repentance, we are fully and wholly accepted by Christ. Amen? Tulian Tichevin says this, Legalism says God will love us if we change. The gospel says God will change us because he loves us. Isn't that awesome? God's love, his grace is poured out on those that are his. Let me ask you, do you struggle with worldly sorrow this morning? Do one of the Three statements I just shared pertain to you. Worldly sorrow is dangerous because it is always motivated and centered on self. It leads to more problems like fear, like worry, anger, rage, and depression. And I will tell you, many in our society are struggling with depression because they are consumed with what we call worldly sorrow. Well, what does worldly sorrow bring us? What does worldly sorrow bring us? Or what do we reap when we mourn like the world? Well, let's look back to 2 Corinthians 7.10. 2 Corinthians 7.10, and we're going to read the last half again. But worldly sorrow brings death. It brings death. Worldly sorrow brings death. Why? Well, it's really simple because... There is no real forgiveness of sins in worldly sorrows. We can't find freedom when our sin is still upon us. Judas is a great example of this. He was full of remorse and sorrow after he betrayed Christ, right? Judas was filled, stricken, plagued, controlled by worldly sorrow. He mourned inwardly. He looked for relief. He wanted to find forgiveness for his sins. But guess what? He found none. He found no relief. So what did he do? He committed suicide. He killed himself. Worldly mourning destroys those who grieve this way. Worldly sorrow continues to separate us from God instead of bring us closer. We find no relief in worldly sorrow because sin reign supreme in our life. What about us today? Do we mourn and get upset when life does not go our way? Do we mope and pout? Do we look to self for the answers? Because we don't find relief that way. But Jesus says, I have the answer. Jesus says, happy are those who mourn. Happy are those who who mourn. So what is the mourning Christ is talking about this morning? It's the type of mourning that leads us away from self into the loving arms of Christ. 
The foundation was laid when we looked at beatitude number one, which says we are helpless, we are lost, we are in need of serious help, and we, in desperation, turn to Christ. And when we do, he starts working and changing our hearts. He uses the Holy Spirit to transform us from the inside out. And that takes us to truth number two. Citizens of Christ mourn over offending God. Citizens of Christ mourn over offending God. You may be wondering, well, how do we offend God? What is, that, what is it that really affects our relationship to God? What hinders or puts a barrier between myself and God? The answer is sin. Sin. We open up the Bible, guess what the problem is? Sin. Even though our culture doesn't see sin as the problem anymore, guess what? The Bible says sin is still our main problem. And the beautiful thing is, as we grow in Christ, we have a newfound sensitivity toward sin in our life because we recognize how much it hurts our relationship to God and how we are rebelling against God when we are being sinful. Do we mourn over our sin this morning? When is the last time you grieved over your sin? When is the last time we mourned over our loose tongues? When is the last time we grieved over the lack of self-control in our life? When is the last time we wailed over our stubborn pride? When is the last time we mourned over our lack of love for God and others in our lives? When is the last time we grieved over the lack of prayer life that we really have or the lack of time spent in God's holy, infallible word? Sin is still the problem, brothers and sisters. Sin is mankind's curse. It is our plague. It is our disease. Sin is what hinders our relationship with others. Turn with me to James 4.1 this morning. James 4.1. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that war within you? Let me read that again. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that war within you? See, the world says our relationship problems are caused by communication issues or personality differences. But James says quite clearly here, our problem in communication stems from our sin in our lives. The struggles that we have with sin, our rebellion against God. We sin, church, because we ourselves are sinners. Our bend is to sin. This is who we are naturally before we turn to Christ in faith and repentance. This sin goes so deep that Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The heart is who we are, who we really truly are. It's where our motives are found. Sin has so affected us at the deepest level 
that it affects our hearts where all of life flows. And what would Paul the Apostle say about himself if he was sitting here? What would he say? Would Paul say he struggled with sin? Or would Paul say things like most Christians today in America say, I'm a really good person. I do everything for God. I'm so great and special. I have this great relation with God. And because I do, he gives me everything I want. That's the type of Christianity we're following today. And it's sickening because Paul says this. He says, I am chief of sinners. Paul said he was worst or foremost of sinners. The man who wrote half the New Testament, the man who gave his life for the gospel, the man who suffered on numerous occasions with beatings and imprisonments, said he was worst or foremost or chief of sinners. Does that surprise us? Why did Paul call himself worst of sinners? Well, he encountered the real God from the Bible, not the, the God that we follow in America. And, it's, and, he's, and he had a right and big view of God. This gave Paul a clear view of himself when he saw the real God of the Bible. And when he had a clear view of himself, God's holiness revealed his sinfulness. Or God's purity revealed his true wickedness. Paul mourned over the fact that he knew he offended God on a daily basis in his relationship to him. So he dealt with those sins. He mourned over his sinfulness. Truth number three. Citizens of Christ mourn, which brings real transformation. Citizens of Christ mourn, which brings transformation. Let's look back at 2 Corinthians 7.10 again. 2 Corinthians 7.10, which says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. Godly sorrow, or mourning God's way, says naturally it brings Repentance. My question is, what is repentance? What in the world does repentance mean? Because I ask many people what repentance means, and I usually get answers like this. Repentance is being sorry for your sins. Repentance is confessing your sins. Or repentance is forgiveness of sins. Now, I agree that those are parts of repentance. But clearly, confession of sin is confession of sin. And clearly, forgiveness of sin is clearly forgiveness of sin. Repentance means to turn from. A change of mind. A change of the inner man, the heart. John MacArthur says, repentance is not just a change of mind, but a change of heart. It's going one direction and turning and going the opposite direction. Repentance is stopping things and starting new things. That's what repentance is. Turn with me to Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. That's Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. And Paul decides to teach the church at Ephesus what repentance is. And he says this. Church at Ephesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off 
your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul starts out by just giving him a general example, a teaching on repentance, and then he goes into very practical mode and starts giving examples. Go one verse down. He says this, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and start speaking the truth. Stop lying and start speaking the truth. Or go down a few more verses to verse 28, and Paul says this, He who has been stealing no longer, but wait, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work with his hands that he may have something to share with those in need. So Paul says, stop stealing and start working, right? But he knows that a person who is used to stealing, guess who they might start working for? If they're stealing for self, well, guess what? They might actually just start working to benefit themselves. So Paul adds That little small thing by saying, and that you may have something to share with others. So he says, stop being selfish, stop stealing, start working, stop being selfish, and start using the money you work for to give to others as well. That's repentance. That's repentance. Repentance is a whole person transformation as God changes the heart, which affects how we think, how we act, and then it even affects how we feel. That means a transformed heart will always result in a transformed life. Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Well, what does God do for those who mourn God's way? What does he do? Well, let's look back to that. Second beatitude, it says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, right? Comforted. Truth number four, citizens of Christ mourn and God comforts them. Citizens of Christ mourn and God comforts them. So you may be wondering, well, how does God comfort those who mourn over their sinfulness? Or why does God comfort those who have godly sorrow for their sin? And again, this is quite simple if we think through this. Because we are the only ones, if we're in Christ, to find real, authentic, genuine forgiveness of sins. That's pretty amazing. That should be exciting to us. (laughs) Um... God is the only one who can truly clear or delete all the sin in our past, our present, and our future. He's the only one that can delete the sin. But not only that, but he also deletes the guilt of sin that we suffer with. That is amazing. And the parable of the prodigal son shows us what it looks like to mourn God's way and God comforting those who are broken and sorrowful over their sin. So turn with me to Luke 15, verses 11 through 24. That's Luke 15, verses 11 through 24.
And Jesus is the one who said this parable. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to the father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he, that is the father, divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything he had, there was a severe famine in the whole country. He began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything to eat. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found So they began to celebrate. The prodigal son had godly sorrow. He mourned over his sinfulness. He was ashamed. He knew he deserved nothing. He was sorry for his sins. He turned from his wicked ways and he turned back to his father. How did his father respond to him? Did he reprimand him? Did he lecture him? Did he discipline him? Did the father say, you aren't worthy to be my son? No, no. Let's reread it again in verses 20 through 24. And it says this, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Amen. Wow. What is God's response to a son or daughter who mourns and has godly sorrow? He comforts them. He loves them. God pours out his mercy on them. God is gracious. God is a holy God. But he is so filled with grace at the same time. Amen. And let me say that we are often the prodigal son and the prodigal daughter. 
And God in his love and his grace draws us back to himself. I mean, think about it. The prodigal son wasted everything in wild living and God almost gave him no choice, right? He was desperate and he finally turned back to his father. That's the grace of God working. And when we turn to God, because we mourn over our sins, he welcomes us with open arms. He welcomes us with open arms. What a gracious father we actually serve. He continues to love us in spite of how sinful and wicked we are. As God turns wicked, vile, wretches like us into saints, the Bible says. In conclusion... In conclusion, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Do you mourn over your sin this morning? Husbands, do we mourn over the lack of love we really have for our wives? Are we repenting of the lack of leadership we often show in our homes? Wives, do you wail over the lack of honor you show to your husband at times? Are you repenting over your unwillingness to follow your husband? Teens, do you mourn over the times you don't obey your parents? Do you repent of sins like deceiving mom and dad? Brothers and sisters, are we mourning, wailing, crying, broken over our sinfulness? Our sin is rebellion against God. Yes, it is against others, the people that we sin against, but it's always first and foremost against our sovereign, perfect God. May we be a church who walks in repentance. May we really mourn over our sin instead of the bad things that happen to us and when we're frustrated about things not going right in our life, but we actually mourn over the real important things like rebellion against God. I want to now take a few moments and let you reflect on all this. I know it's a lot to pack in in 25, 30 minutes. But I want you to think about where you're at with the Lord right now. And think about and confess any sins that you're struggling with in your life this morning. And not only just confess them, but start really changing and working on them, right? We are supposed to stop doing something and start doing something else. I will end us in prayer here and then... Luke will come up and lead us in one final song. So let's pray. Holy Father, we praise you. We thank you that you are so gracious to people like us, Father. We recognize often we don't have the heart of Paul who thought of himself as chief of sinners because he had such a close relationship to you. He realized often how he sinned against you as your word says every time we do anything that's not in faith, it's sin. Wow, we struggle often with sin. Help us to be people who walk in repentance for your honor and glory, to glorify you and truly make disciples of Jesus Christ. We love you, and it's through Christ's name. Amen.